Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. So I want to tell you about our new sponsor of the podcast, Thrive Market. As many of you know, I recently became a dad. My wife, Colleen, and I have an eight-month-old baby girl, Ellie. It's not an exaggeration when I say that as a new parent, Thrive Market has been a complete lifesaver, which is why I'm so excited that we've teamed up with them to offer you $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership. Yep, you heard that right, $60 of free groceries. It's a crazy good deal and it's going to save you a ton of money on food and products that'll make you feel absolutely amazing. And you can get all the details by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. Again, thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. If you haven't heard of Thrive Market, it's an online marketplace that's made up of 100% healthy and organic products, the type of premium food, household cleaners, and bathroom products you'd see on MBG. Except on Thrive, everything is 25 to 50% off retail price. They do this by taking out the middleman. They work with brands directly and then pass those savings on to their customers. For Colleen and I, the convenience has been a huge part of it. Everything on Thrive Market is hyper curated, so we're not scrolling through endless lists trying to find the one or two brands that meet our admittedly stringent standards. In Brooklyn, where we live, you often find yourself going to one store for collagen powder, another store for organic soap, another store for the right brand of BPA-free canned beans. It can take hours. And as someone running a major wellness media company, that's time I simply don't have. Thrive Market is one-stop shopping. Everything on the site is amazing, but beyond that, you can click to sort by vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, paleo, etc. You can even sort by more out there things. For instance, as you know, we're big into gut health on MBG. And as you might not know, Colleen is actually a big snacker. So on Thrive Market, you can go to the snack section and click to filter by snacks that contain probiotics. That was how we actually discovered the farmhouse culture Kraut Crisps, which contain billions of probiotics and are dangerously good. Check them out at thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen. We've also been loving the lifestyle categories. Browsing the mom section was how Colleen stumbled across the organic gripe water that's been a game changer for Ellie's teething pain. I didn't even know what gripe water was, to be honest, and I definitely didn't know that there was an organic version. But thanks to Thrive Market, we now have a happy baby on our hands. And get this, it's normally $12.50 at your local health food store, but only $8.50 on Thrive Market. We recently held our annual Revitalize event in Arizona, where we debuted our new motto, You, We, All. At MBG, we think it's so important to reap the benefits of wellness on an individual level. Sure, we all want to feel amazing and live our best lives, but recently, we've really focused on expanding that message. We believe that wellness can change the world and that people who feel good can affect amazing change, which is why I'm so excited to hear about Thrive Market's one-for-one program. For everyone that signs up, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher to help make healthy living affordable for everyone. Okay, so here's the deal. Right now, you can get up to $60 of free organic groceries, free shipping, and a 30-day trial membership by going to thrivemarket.com slash mindbodygreen. I'd start in the staple section where you'll find the kind of wellness essentials that we recommend on Mind Buddy Green daily, and then work your way out from there, depending on your own needs and preferences. 
Keep in mind, all of their prices are already up to 50% off, and now they're giving you an extra $60 free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mindbuddygreen. But be careful with the Kraut Crisps, though. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, now let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Dan Buettner is a National Geographic Fellow and multiple New York Times bestselling author. He has discovered the five places in the world dubbed Blue Zones where people live the longest and are the healthiest. His latest book, Blue Zones for Happiness, chronicles the happiest people in the world. Dan has been featured on NBC, The Today Show, Dr. Oz, Good Morning America, and Oprah. He also holds three Guinness Book of World Records in distance cycling. Dan, welcome. <laughs> what a pleasure. The second time I'm here in the new mind, body, green, new space. I almost feel more serene. We're trying. <laughs> we're <laughs> trying. So Blue Zones, uh, we're going to talk about this amazing new book, Blue Zones for Happiness, which everyone has to pick up. But what? talk to us about what are Blue Zones? How did this Blue Zones journey b- begin for you? Well, I read a story in, uh, or I read research from the World Health Organization in 2000 that pinpointed Okinawa, Japan as the part of the world where people have the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. And I go, aha, uh-huh. there's a good mystery. <laughs> and I started poking around it at 17 years ago. And um, we used to do these interactive expeditions. We had huge engagement, so I knew people were interested in longevity. And I also knew it wasn't genes. And came back and formulated a, a research grant for the National Institutes on Aging. And I, I mentioned the idea to my editor at National Geographic, and he liked it. And I got an assignment for, for National Geographic. The first Blue Zone area was in Sardinia. And the demographer I worked with, as he was honing in on this cluster of villages in the highlands, he was using a blue Sharpie. And we got in the habit of calling the area inside the blue Sharpie, so, the blue zone. So that's how it happened. That's blue the, Sharpie. Yeah, that's so it could be red zones, green zones. God, I'm glad he wasn't pink zones. Pink, yeah. <laughs> it luckily had to be blue. But then it was my idea to expand it to mean an, uh, really a concept and an area where people live statistically longest. And now I'm applying it to happiness. And it's more and more becoming this notion of finding the most extraordinary populations in the world, the statistically most extraordinary populations, and then reverse engineering to distill out the lessons. So that's kind of my... So the first blue zones, you're finding these pockets of the world where people are living the longest and healthiest quality of life. Yes, and that's measured by either life expectancy, middle-age mortality, or that's more or less their... um, chances of reaching a healthy age 90 that's the kind of the limit of the human body 
or it is a centenarian rate, how many hundred-year-olds in the concentration of hundred-year-olds in the population. And those three criteria kind of come together in the five Blue Zones areas. And um, because they're achieving the health and longevity outcomes we want, they're doing something right. And remarkably, no matter where you go and you find longevity, they do the same nine things over and over and over again. And I believe there's... What are those nine things? (laughs) (laughs) Well... Okay, they don't exercise, and I want to talk more about that. They, they, they move naturally. They have sacred daily rituals to uh, reverse the stress and worry of everyday living. They have vocabulary for purpose. They drink a little bit. They eat a plant-based diet, overwhelmingly plant-based. They have strategies to keep them overeating. They invest heavily in their family. They tend to be religious, and they are either born into or carefully curate social circles that nurture them, that um, influence them to do the right things day in and day out as opposed to the wrong things. Wow. We call it the power nine. That's a good nine. So talk about exercise. Well, it's an unmitigated failure when it comes to public health. I mean, you know, we, I mean, it's like you knock yourself on the head after 65 years of of you know Jack LaLanne and on up of trying to get people to exercise and meanwhile America just keeps getting more unhealthy and it's complete folly to think that we can sit in our offices or sit in our homes for eight nine ten hours a day and then make up for it a half hour or an hour in the gym that's not the way we evolve and first of all people don't go on average we burn fewer than 100 calories a day engaged in quote-unquote exercise if you look at the longest of populations in the world, they're nudged into moving mindlessly every 20 minutes or so. So their metabolisms are burning along at a higher level. And you add up all those little bursts of physical activity, and it's way more caloric burn than, you know, half-hour CrossFit at the end of the day. Right. So it's, it's not CrossFit. It's walking up the hill or walking to work. Grinding your own corn, kneading your own bread, working in your garden. Uh, lifting up your own garage door, walking to a friend's house, kids walking to school. And, you know, and, until we let go, stop beating the dead horse of individual responsibility and telling people they, they have to have the discipline and buck up and get more exercise, until we quit doing that and focus on re-engineering our environment, both indoor and out, we're not going to see this obesity epidemic right. flatline. You for can't a long exercise time. your way out of a bad diet. No, you have a better and you have a better chance engineering your way out of a, a bad diet and a better built environment if if physical activity is your aim. So walk us through the other eight too. This is a great blue zones primer before we jump into happiness <laughs> oh, for people. Well, it's a good. There's a lot of good yeah. stuff here. So you know most of the things that get you to live a long time are nothing marketers can package up and sell. You know I hate these people who are trying to use blue zones to sell their bullcrap anti-aging creams and <laughs> supplements. I don't believe in any of that. The, the uh, longest-lived people in the world, they have vocabulary for purpose. The famous head of the National Institutes on Aging, Robert Butler, did a landmark study that found that people could articulate their sense of purpose, live about eight years longer than people who can't. Wow. And in Blue Zones, there's vocabulary. The Okinawa, this ikigai, which has become a big name, word in itself. There are books about it. Or in Costa Rica, it's plan de vida. 
very important to know where you're going in life, to take time to know what am I good at, what do I like to do, what are my passions, and what's an outlet. And for 70% of Americans, this is according to Gallup, they hate their job. They're not getting their purpose outlet at work. So they have to find someplace outside of work, either volunteering or with a group of friends or a hobby or... Yeah, because purpose can be daunting for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I gotta find, I'm not happy at work. Well, then what do I do? And people become depressed. It can be overwhelming. You're right. You and, and we, you know, America, we're not really born with this sense of purpose. But if you're born in Korea, Greece, or uh, an Adventist, you grow up with a kind of baked-in sense of purpose. And uh, we have to find it here. But if you want to direct people to live a longer, happier life, you know, don't send them to pills and don't send them to supplements and, and facial creams. Uh, <laughs> take them through the internal inventory so they know what they're good at. Like, you know, in America, we have this no child left behind. We teach math, science, and language arts. And those are useful tools, but they don't really get at living a good life. Get, live, we should be teaching kids the... Uh, the to go inside and articulate and know their purpose. So that informs the their um, study course in college and what jobs. We should be teaching kids consensus. Right. How to actually, even if I don't agree with you, let's talk it out and find some middle ground, which is a huge problem in our country right now. We should be teaching how to pick a mate. 90% of your happiness or lack thereof uh, is in ending up with the right partner in life. Sure. But we don't teach kids how to pick a mate. You know, basically your hormones crackle one day and nine months later you got a kid, you know, or you say I do and, and you know, then you're, you know, you're, you're stuck. Swipe right, swipe left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> so, so go back. So, I swipe up. So, so you, <laughs> I wonder why I'm alone. <laughs> so you're not alone, Dan. So you've got... the best. <laughs> <laughs> so purpose... What what else is in those nine? Like before okay, we move food. on to happiness, food, food. food plant based okay, diet. Okay, this is. I am standing up on my chair with my arms waving over my head. So, overwhelmingly, the longest of people in the world are eating mostly low refined plants, and I know that's de rigueur right now. But the f- pillars of longevity diets everywhere around the world. Four things. Remember these. Write them down. Grains, whole grains, all kinds. Greens. You go to Ikaria, Greece, and they got 120 greens, many of which have 10 times the antioxidants that, that red wine does. And they're the type of greens that we would weed whack in our backyard, and they bake them into beautiful pies and make salads out of them. Nuts, handful of nuts a day, adds two years to your life expectancy. And then the big 900-pound gorilla, if you want to take supplements, Get yourself about a thousand beans and cook them slowly with herbs and eat them with grains. That's about the best supplement you can have. Bean, if you're eating a cup of beans a day, it's probably adding about four years to your life expectancy over eating less healthy forms of protein. So, investing in your family. Um, if you want to see the life expectancy of your parents drop uh, almost immediately put them in a retirement home. So these cultures tend to keep aging parents nearby, which imparts greater life expectancy to them. But actually something called the grandmother effect shows that in a, in a home where there's a grandparent nearby, those children do better. Lower rates of 
disease, lower rates of mortality. They do better in school. So it's a virtuous circle. That's amazing. Yeah, so, you know, I could go on. Or, or better yet, you can read Blue Zone Solution, and it'll yes. tell you this in, <laughs> in absolutely incandescent so, clarity, and it'll, and it'll show you exactly so what So I'm going to go through the, so the, so going through the the evolution of Blue Zone. So you start doing the research, and then what I know a book came and a TED Talk. Just walk us through before we just segue to happiness, like how this thing happened. You're, you're, you're literally at a blue, a blue Sharpie. Yes, and then ha- and now it's like this big movement. Yeah. So originally, I got a cover story um, assignment for National Geographic, and after Sardinia, I applied the name Blue Zones to um, Okinawa, Japan, and to the Seventh Day Adventist, and the cover story did very well. And then Lisa Thomas from National Geographic came up to me and says, "Why don't you do a book?" And I'm, all right. So I spent another three years writing the Blue Zones lessons, nine lessons for living longer from the people who live the longest. And that became a big New York Times bestseller. It's huge. And I kind of realized, Jason, at a certain point, you, you go to all these talk shows, and I got to be on Dr. Oz and Oprah and Good Morning America and CNN and everything. And you, you kind of feel the sort of revolving door of health and 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 the doctor's got some expertise here and the new diet and all that. And I, just, I, just, I, didn't, I don't want to be part of that. I know I had spent five years clearly finding and articulating what truly leads longevity, and I wanted to apply it. And here, if you boil it all down to its quintessence, this is the secret of longevity. No matter where you go and you find people living a long time, it's not because they tried. Hmm. They never got on a diet, never got on a... Not biohacking their way to... Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, some workplace wellness or called an 800 number. Longevity happened to them. And centenarians around the world where people live a long time, they have no idea how they got to live long. It's it's like asking you, how did you get to be tall? You know, you can't, you don't really know. You might have, you know, well, you probably have tall parents, but you might have have eaten something too, you know. (laughs) But um, the, the bottom line is that uh, when it comes to health and longevity where people achieve it, it's not because they pursue it. It's because it ensues from the right environment. So their environments are set up where fruits and vegetables and nuts and greens are cheapest and most accessible. They have time-honored recipes to make them taste good. I could tell you bitter melon is a secret to longevity, and if you don't like bitter melon, you ain't going to eat it. You're right. not going to live a long time. Um, they have Their kitchens are set up so it's easy to make. They have social networks where people gather around these plant-based foods, and it's this cluster of behaviors that, that hold the right habits in place for a long time. Because when it comes to longevity, there's no pill, there's no supplement, there's no genetic intervention even on the scientific horizon so if you want to live to the capacity of the human machine which is about 92 years the name of the game is avoiding the things that foreshorten our lives and the only proven way to do that is to optimize your surroundings look at what the world's longest lived people's uh, surroundings look like and recreate them in america so segue to the new book Let's talk about the role of happiness and longevity. 
So after 17 years with longevity, you, at a certain point you realize, well, making it to 100 isn't worth it unless you enjoy the journey. <laughs> <laughs> or 92 if you don't enjoy the journey. Yeah, or 18. Or whatever age, yeah. You know, I did. I, I took the Blue Zone precepts and I applied them to cities for a long time. And, and also in cities, people are more interested in immediate well-being than they are necessarily in tacking an extra eight years onto the end of their lives. So this expertise I've developed at National Geographic of finding populations that are statistically best and then reverse engineering, I applied it to happiness. So actually, we started about a decade ago, but I really ramped up the last three years for the Blue Zones of Happiness book, working with international databases that represent about 95% of the human population and finding the statistically happiest places and then using a combination of correlative science and uh, investigative journalism to explain different facets of happiness and then how we can learn those lessons and apply them to our own lives. So how do you define happiness for this? Well, that's a good question. Happiness is actually a meaningless term for academics <laughs> because you can't, really, you can't really measure it. But you can measure how satisfied people are with their lives. So surveyors, they'll do a representative sample of an entire country. Uh, and they've done it in 151 countries. And they'll ask more or less this question. On a scale of 1 to 10, when you think of your life as a whole, how satisfied are you with your life? And you find places like Moldavia and Zimbabwe and Afghanistan where, on average, people are reporting a 3. And then you find places like Singapore, where people are reporting about an eight. So we went, so that's one kind of facet of happy. The second facet of happiness is how much joy and laughter did you feel in the last 24 hours? So you only remember about 2% of your life. Mm -hmm. High points, low points, what happened last. But you can remember the last 24 hours pretty accurately. So you can kind of get at people how they're experiencing their lives by asking them about the last 24 hours. And then to get at purpose, the question is, are you using your strengths to do what you do best every day? Hmm. That's a, the measure for purpose. I like that. And because we can actually measure those three, I just convince these databases, and largely because I work with National Geographic, to run the numbers and to point in each of these three categories, where in the world are they doing it the best, and what things correlate with each of these three. And then you can start to distill out what are the, what are the drivers of each of these three uh, facets of happiness. And by the way, in the, in the book, I call them pride, purpose, and pleasure. Mm. And you really want to weave these three threads together into kind of a rope of authentic. So you mentioned Singapore. So what's going on there? Seems like they got things figured out. I argue that that's the, 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 better than any place else in recent history, they have manufactured happiness. That place was a mess in the mid-1960s. Revolutions brewing. Sure. And, uh, three different ethnicities thrown into this this hot pot. And Lee Kuan Yew, who supremely understood the Confucian value set, uh, went about creating uh, an environment where people can live out their values of the security, respect for authority, harmony, very Asian values. And Singapore is a place that's going to appeal to people who like a neatly articulated path to success and if there is some assurance of financial security on the other end. 
So in Singapore, you know, you work hard and, and you keep your nose down, you're almost assured that you'll be taken care of financially in the end. And some, you know, there's more millionaires per capita there than there's mm-hmm. any place else in the world. Second highest life expectancy in the world. One of the best hospital systems in the world. And uh, virtually everybody has what they need in life. And um, they, they produce very high life satisfaction. The highest in Asia for sure, and perhaps the highest in the world. So you mentioned financial security. What role does money have in all this? Well, money buys happiness to the extent that it covers our needs. So the, the minimum ante for happiness is food, shelter. It's hard to be happy with an empty stomach, right? Sure. Shelter, health or health care, education. You need to be able to treat yourself. Travel? Do we throw travel in there? Yeah, but for some people, they prefer a staycation and to go anyway. Got so, it. Okay. so it really, I would just say treat yourself, depending on whatever your definition of treating yourself. It might be retail therapy. <laughs> um, but after that, the effect of money on your happiness uh, flattens out. You know, it's a mar- so diminishing. It's like that $75,000 number, right? Yeah, 75000 on average in America. For New York, it's about double that. <laughs> LA, seriously. And, you know, if you live in <laughs> Iowa, you're good with like forty grand. So. Right. But the point is, it's like, how much do you need to pay for your basic your basics in your life? And after that, you should stop working so hard or working at a job you don't like and focus on other things that more dependably deliver happiness. And that's when you kind of segue from this idea of life satisfaction to enjoying day-to-day living out your values. Yeah, so what does that look like? What is that day-to-day for people? So, so I, I, I'm guessing people are listening right now. They're like, oh, they're starting to lean, you know, lean in and say that... Let me give you an emblematic day that would produce probably the highest average happiness. First of all, you would wake up after between eight and nine and a half hours of sleep. That produces up to 30% more happiness than sleeping for six hours. You would have a plant-based breakfast, maybe oatmeal, but you also want some fat in there and some protein so it gives you staying power throughout the day without making you sluggish. Can we have some coffee, Dan? Coffee, net positive, no matter where you go. I'm sold. Yes, yes. Black coffee, uh, maybe a little soy milk in there. Working at a job where you get to use your strengths every day, and the ideal number of hours is probably six hours a day at quote-unquote work. I'm failing there. Yeah, but you're building an empire. That's, you, I have too much purpose. Yes, we're, the rest of us are getting happy on your shoulders. So, so They're broad, which is good. But. Yes, to carry America and, and our foreign listeners as well. So um, you should socialize for lunch and for dinner and even after work in a happy hour. So the happiest Americans are socializing five to six hours a day, face-to-face, wow. not FaceTime. Uh, a nap might not be a bad idea. You want to spend some time every day giving back. Volunteers, no matter where you are, are happier. You want to spend about an hour a day engaged in physical activity. You're less likely to develop an infectious disease, I mean, a chronic disease, but also people work out better, have happier day-to-day experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, for most of us, spending time for family, some time investing in your family will will. will I'll give a return. And if it's a, if it's on the weekend and you're religious, religion is a good investment in time. Sure. But if you're not religious, it's not a good investment in time. So. Sure. It's like if you, you like bro- if you like broccoli, eat broccoli. If you don't like broccoli, then find another vegetable you like. There you go. God, that's a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned religion. 
what role does faith have in happiness? So if you live in a religious place, being religious makes you happier. If you don't live in a religious place, it's not quite as advantageous. If you live in a religious place, you're religious, you probably feel your faith is more validated, you fit in with your neighbors. Mm -hmm. But people who belong to a faith, A, they tend to have a built-in social network. It's a pretty good one. They're less likely to engage in the risky behaviors that will make them unhappy. You know, most of the faiths have an hour or two baked into their week, so they're, they're stopping and being reflective and not looking at their devices. And uh, who knows? Maybe there's a God, and if you ask God to be happiness, she'll help out. So. I love that God's a she. I love it. As far as I'm concerned. It's <laughs> my God. So you mentioned Singapore. What other cities are, are you know, what are the happiest cities? So when it comes to uh, uh, purpose, uh, and I actually have featured this in a cover story for National Geographic in November, so if you want to see beautiful pictures, uh, you can see Love it Love beautiful pictures. Um, so Aalborg, Denmark, is what we focused on as the part of the world where people have the most purpose. And it's, it's not a coincidence, by the way. The places that produce happy people, there was a conscious effort on the part of enlightened leaders to put the right policies in place. And the right policies, quite honestly, are places where universal health care, preventative health, not so much the sick care we have in America, literacy for kids, educating mothers, and access to quality social services is a universal right. You see that everywhere mm -hmm. where people are happy. And it's not that... Um, you know, GDP and economic growth aren't important. It's just that they're not as important as making sure everybody has the basics for, for, for most places. So you look at Denmark. Everybody has free health care, free education. In fact, when you go to the university there, you get paid. You draw a salary. And nobody has to worry about when they get old if they're going to have enough to live. Mm -hmm. uh, only 17% of Americans have enough saved to cover their retirement. Uh, in Denmark, everybody. It's a place where ambition and fame and status are not really celebrated. And it's a place where everybody is sort of taxed to the mean. Hmm. Actually, the taxes there aren't much higher than they are where I'm from in Minnesota or California. But, you know, higher, the more money you make, the more you're taxed. So what that leaves people with is the understanding that they're much better off taking a job that engages their abilities and passions, that one that, that, one that just you know, pays them more money. Um, so you, as a result, you have a country that excels at furniture making and architecture and design and niche technology. So they're spending most of their waking hours doing something they enjoy rather than something they have to do. They're knocking off after about 37 hours, and actually the, the Danish government provides subsidies for clubs. Almost everybody in that oh, country wow. belongs to a club. And, you know, for the geographic stories I've done, well, we covered everything from, like, rabbit jumping to cold water swimming to old guys who play with model trains. <laughs> but, you know, there, no matter what you love to do, and we all have different things, that bizarre stuff that we love to do, 
there is an outlet for it, and uh, it's encouraged and indeed subsidized. So people do interest. They don't sit around and watch four and a half hours of TV like America. Which is like the average we watch, right? Yeah, four point four hours. So Boulder is another one of those cities here in America. What are they? What are they doing right in Boulder? So if we pivot to the United States, the other international one was Costa Rica. Sure. But um, if we pivot in the United States, Blue Zones teamed up with Gallup to create a special index. And for this index, we found the 15 ingredients to happiness, and the measurable ingredients, like pain. How often have you felt pain in the last week? Security, do you feel safe where you live? Do you, are you able to take regular vacations? Do you do something new and interesting every day? Even um, access to a dentist. You find that places sure. where people can go to the dentist every year are happier than places where you can't. It's huge for kids, too. Really huge. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're dating. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, so we, the special index is drawn from 1.5 million surveys done over the past five years, and it, we uh, ran it against about 150 cities in America, and then we ra- ranked them. And Boulder, Colorado c- comes up as number one, and I covered that in the geographic piece. But also statistically insignificantly essentially equal are Santa Cruz California San Luis Obispo Charleston Virginia oh Charlottesville Charlottesville thank you duh Charlottesville Virginia which is odd because just the I disaster know. that just happened there to me that just seems so fucked up <laughs> yeah, we can say fuck yeah we can do this is a podcast <laughs> oh, Dan this isn't the today show come on let loose this is my buddy green we're real here Dan <laughs> fucking A <laughs> <laughs> fucking beans I love Get it some beans <laughs> rock on um well, bad things happen in all places. You know, bad things happen. In, in well, Denmark, they, they had that whole thing with those Muhammad cartoons. Well, I, I want to go back to Boulder but, yeah, and identify what they're doing there. And, then I, and I do want to talk about, like, in, in this world we live in today, you know, it looks like the climate's collapsing. We've got ra- – it's just, it's just crazy. And, and for some people, it's like, how do, I, how, do I, how do I – how am I happy? How can I be happy with the insanity we live in? And it's that balance of how do I channel anger and, and happiness – you turn on the news, it's depressing. Yeah, but you don't have to turn on the news. You have, well, the one thing you have to realize about the news, almost all news is... Or Twitter or Facebook. What? You should just turn on Mind, Body, Green <laughs> and leave it at that. <laughs> you know, the, 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 there's a lot of good news in this world, and that gets vastly underreported because it doesn't get a good rating as sure. the disaster or whatever stupid things our president is tweeting. I, I'm a big believer in, in just not reading the daily newspapers and tuning in to daily TV, turn it off. It, that, it negatively impacts our daily emotions, and that's a facet of happiness, and it's something we can do something about. I read The New Yorker, where there's interesting stories. Sure. Instead of getting on the plane and seeing the daily news churn of the same crap, bad news. But the other thing that you can move from an unhappy place to a happy place, and you can reliably see a bump in happiness. And we know this. Very interesting study done in Canada. So Canadians have been following immigrants that come from less happy places in Asia and Africa. Canada's a very happy place, but much happier than the United States. And they found that no matter your age, your gender, your sexual orientation, um, your ethnicity, when you move to Canada within a year 
And no matter how unhappy you were, when you move to Canada within a year on average, you start reporting the level of happiness at Canadians. Wow. So it fuels this notion that if you live in an unhappy place, like the American Southeast tends to be, you will stack the deck in favor of happiness very significantly by moving to places like Boulder and San Luis Obispo. And so what is Boulder doing right? They had enlightened leaders about 50 years ago that questioned the unquestioned virtue of development and focused on quality of life. And they made some tough decisions. For example, they, they knew that a lot of people moved to Boulder because they like access to recreation and green. Mm-hmm. And they actually levied a tax. It's a swear word in a lot of parts of America. But they took that tax money and they bought land around the city, which they could preserve from developers, so that anybody sitting on Pearl Street in their office during the lunch break could take a nature hike and be back in time for their 1 o'clock meeting. They have this gorgeous view of the flat irons uh, Mm -hmm. around, and that view gives them happiness every day. And Boulderites themselves, uh, developers, you know, they often get their way because they have undue political influence. Boulderites themselves had the discipline and the organizing ability. I met this phenomenal woman named Ruth Wright, 88-year-old, just firecracker of a woman who organized to prevent high-rises from going up to block off that view. So now in Boulder, there's no buildings above Mm -hmm. the, the tallest tree, five stories. They have something called the blue line, which I loved it because it's kind of blue zone-ish. <laughs> but some clever professors, developers wanted to build fancy houses way up high in the mountains, which would have just, instead of looking at the mountains, people sure. would look at other people's fancy houses. You wouldn't need to see that. And they figured out that the city was about to pump water above this certain altitude to just to service the fancy houses. And they said, well, wait, we're taxpayers. We don't want to pay for those developers to build those fancy houses. So they created this blue line at the altitude above which you cannot get water unless you repumped it up. Uh-huh. So it's a very famous blue line. If you if you Google blue line in Boulder, you'll see the mindset that produces happiness. I want to add a couple other things very quickly. It's a very bikeable city. Yeah, You can get across Boulder faster on a bicycle than you can a car. That's because they plan for humans, their streets for humans, and they don't allow billboards. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, billboards make two people happy. The owner of the billboard and the person advertising junk to you. They don't really <laughs> make humans happy. So Boulder said, ordinance, no billboards. And guess what? It's a pleasant place to be. Wow. So like a lot of people listening, probably, I'm a New Yorker. I love New York. I, we live in Brooklyn. Our office is in Brooklyn. I, I love Brooklyn. But I'm hearing all this. And I'm like, maybe, how can I be happier if i live in a major city like new york what is what does blue zones look like for me so blue zones of happiness i try to point out where the happiest places are but i try to distill from that i do distill from it the um portable features of a happy place that you can put into work in your life so you start saying well what can i do i live in new york well you can actually shape your inner self there's not a lot you can do i'm not i don't believe in you know gratitude and and appreciation journals and all that but i do believe that a very deep meditation experience like vipassana for 10 days or trained by a real meditator for weeks can reshape your brain we rewire your brain to better live in the present Mm. so i think you can reshape that environment you can reshape your home 
there's several things you can do to your home to favor positive emotions. My favorite is what I call pride shrine, where you take pictures that trigger happy memories, maybe your kids or sure. place you like to vacation or a, an award you got, and hang it on a plate, aggregate them on a wall that you pass by a lot every day. And That's, every time you see that, will trigger a pleasant moment. It's very Marie Kondo-like. Very what? Marie Kondo. I don't know who Marie the, Kondo is. The uh, life-changing magic of tidying up. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I like her already. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a small thing, but also plants and, and, and having a window out. You know, your social network's huge. Right. We all can shape that. Which is a big advantage for New Yorkers. Close quarters, you got neighbors, everyone's close to you. What's yeah, yeah, the armpit of the guy next to you on the subway. <laughs> Well, there's connection. You know, people, I have friends in L.A. It's a car yeah. culture. You don't connect with people. Yeah, you're it's, right. You're right. There's a lot to it. And I'm a big fan of what Bloomberg has done here and driving people out from behind the steering wheel and onto their feet. It's a much more pedestrian, right. happy place, a much more bike-friendly. Bikeability and happiness are highly correlated. Mm-hmm. It's not a coincidence that Copenhagen's the most bikeable city on earth. It's also one of the happiest. But to your point, yes, creating social spaces and the investment in trees. And, you know, New York is not a bad place. But what happens here is it's hard to overcome the anonymity. The, the happiest places in America tend to be medium-sized cities, college mm. towns and so forth, where you can still easily, if you're not super outgoing, you can still, you still have enough kind of foundational connections that you can feel like you're part of a, a community, but yet there's enough options that you can find the right mate. Hmm. You know, if the pool is very shallow of mates and you end sure. up with the wrong mate, you're chumped or you're fucked. Sure. As you <laughs> now give yeah. me permission to say. And um, also a job that speaks to your abilities. Right. So, so you, by the way, I spell fuck with a ph, so it's okay. not as bad. It's okay. So then there is hope for New Yorkers: social connections, we bike, nature. Meditative practice, having a home that is uh, positive or brings you joy. So it's doable. We don't all have to pick up and move. No, no. I, I would argue for shaping your own personal environment. You know, who you hang out with. Social network is huge. So you, what you want to do is find five people. And most of us really can't manage more than about five really good friends who, number one, we like. Number two, we can have a meaningful conversation every day. And number three, we can count on them on a, on a bad day. Mm. And, you know, that's not something you can package up and sell people, so you don't often hear about it. But friends have a measurable impact on your happiness and your loneliness. If you go to dinner with a lonely person, you'll actually emerge lonelier than yeah, if you sure. ate alone. Um, but for every new happy person you add to your immediate social network, it increases your own happiness by 15 so or we're, so. So we're not finding this. You mentioned social network. We're not finding these friends on Facebook or Instagram, like real people here, real. Well, I know it's, it's a very rigoire to badmouth social media. <laughs> but actually, National Geographic and Blue Zones, we, we uh, did a survey, uh, about 150,000 people. And we asked them questions about their happiness and then their social media use, and we correlate it. And we actually find that people who are using social media less than an hour a day are the happiest cohort. Right. And actually almost to a little over an hour a day. But after that, 
your happiness falls out. And the really unhappy people tend to be using it six to eight hours sure. a day. So it seems that social media, to the extent that it, it connects you to the real world and gives you maybe a little bit of intellectual repose from a you know demanding job, you know, it's probably okay. But it's, it's funny you mentioned that. Anecdotally, I've noticed over the past couple of years, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, when I, but when I'm there and I notice people starting to post a lot, it's usually a sign of something's wrong in their life. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I believe and, that. And you see it. Like, I'll see friends. Like, I've saw it with people, and then next thing you know, six months later, they're getting a divorce. I've seen it probably five or six times now. You start to see an increase in frequency in a big way. That's and very something's clever. something's wrong. That's very clever. And the less people post, I tend to find, like, the happier they are. Specifically yeah, I, on Facebook. Yeah. And, like, there's a lot of uh, people will also tend to specifically with relationships gush about relationships to, is usually i find at least a sign that something's wrong yeah they're making <laughs> making up for a misstep yeah, that's yeah. very interesting yeah next blue zones book yeah we'll do it together the blue <laughs> zones of social media so what drives you you know in all this research what are we doing wrong like what are the biggest lifestyle mistakes is it the pursuit of health and like what is it well, we try to change our behavior, which is really a, just a recipe for neurosis. You know, we, to try to go after happiness by, I'm going to remember to write in my appreciation journal every day, or I'm going to do one generous act this week. Nobody's going to do it. It's just like the same reason people don't stick on diets. You, we're hardwired for novelty. You get bored. You run out of discipline. And we focus on the wrong things. So shifting that focus to almost putting on a pair of goggles and saying to yourself, all right, well, here's the evidence. Here are the things that ocean of data tell me that make it more likely I'll be happy. You can't guarantee anybody happy, but you can tell them how to set up their life so they'll be nudged into the things that are more likely to make them happy. Okay. So so what are those, someone listening right now may have a, may have a friend who's, who's not really open to having a conversation about happiness uh and there were maybe like three things to pass on so if you're connecting with a guy in the elevator and you tell him what to do and he says what, what are three things i can do what are those three things anyone can do that may have an impact you know i have to know that's like uh, going to a doctor and say i hurt and <laughs> make me not hurt you, i have to diagnose them. <laughs> you I know it. so that you know there's three kinds of happiness your life satisfaction people who are just working for some end in mind experiencing their day joy every day or pursuing their purpose so i'd have to know where their deficit behavior is to to suggest how they fine-tune it a little bit how about one for each if you can maybe general over generalize if you will okay well for life satisfaction you want to focus on making money you want to get an education and make get yourself to the place where you can make 75 grand a year so that's a dependable way to okay. do it. For maximizing your day-to-day -day experience, you want to sleep at least eight hours, and you want to socialize with people six hours a day. You want to make a point of dinner, happy hours. Drinking's okay. It works for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then for purpose, believe it or not, it's caring for somebody else, somebody mm. like an aging parent or a child or... You know, I like to say we all have 99 problems. We have a new wrinkle. Or, what's that? Oh, yeah. Jay-Z, 99 Yeah, and a problems. bitch ain't one of them. Um, 
but but we can work really hard to get the top five things off that list of 99 problems but there's always five new ones but if you take um, the focus off of my 99 problems and put on someone who needs it more than you that those 99 problems diminish relationships so when it comes to a partner what doesn't work is when one is grumpy and one is happy Mm. so two happy people ought to get together and two grumpy people ought to get together they have a better chance that's true they have a much better chance of uh of of making it for the long run but if you can find that partner and commit in a in a real way to somebody who basically shares your value you're about three times more likely to be happy after a decade than somebody who remains single or divorced or you know widowed and what's the so you might decade what's the happiest age and what's the most what's the age where people are most depressed well you have to be careful because depression is mental illness sure, and sure, about sure. a sixth of the yes. population is that and sure. and what i talk about doesn't really address mental illness sure though that would be the best investment so happiness is a u-shaped curve so we tend to be happiest in our or report happiness in our 20s we're optimistic we're getting laid a lot we're um Maybe someday we'll be president. I shouldn't have said that out loud because I don't really know that. I was trying to. Um, <laughs> mid forties to mid fifties, they tend, on average, worldwide, to be the least happy years. And then, as long as you keep your health, your happiness continues to climb into your ninetieth and hundredths. Wow. Happiest cohorts are centenarians who are still active. And I believe the reason for that, by the way, is they learn how to be satisfied. And they, and they deepen their relationships. And uh, they acquire wisdom, which is huh. knowledge plus experience. So what keeps you up at night and what has you excited in the morning? Well, I worry about the uh, growth in population. We're over seven. When I was born, there was one billion people on the planet. Now there's seven billion. And for a long time, I studied collapses. I did a number of expeditions. And all the collapses in the world followed the same trajectory. Some innovative society got really good at beating nature. They overpopulated, and then at some point, some climatic event put a stress on the, on the population, which created social strife, wars, and then the whole thing collapses. And you know, without familiar. putting too fine a point on right. it, a lot of that's happening today. Right. And um, there's just too many people, and there's too much human enterprise. And that's the, that's the problem with it creates global warming, it creates cruelty to animals, it creates a lot of the political situations sure. we're in right now. So what's second question? What has you excited in the morning, other than coffee? Yeah, I'm in the enviable position. I work for National Geographic, and I get to dream up exactly what I'm interested in and go pursue it. And I get to pursue it with the smartest people on the in the world and the best photographers and i have a beautiful outlet for it so it excites me to to do what i do so last question if you could go back in time and give 20 something dan butner when i think you were, were you the paris review yeah yeah like yeah if you could well, go i worked back with george to, yeah, i know the famous george plimpton if you could go back to that dan and and give and give dan advice what would that be keep doing what you're doing <laughs> do, what, do you think about giving it up at a certain point or no, well, you question it because, you know, when I graduated from college and other people are doing useful and productive things working, yeah. I spent eight years biking from Alaska to Argentina. I set the record for biking around the world and biking across Africa. 
And, you know, you'd sort of come back, and my friends were working for Goldman Sachs and buying houses, and they'd look at me and like, you know, when are you going to give up your paper out, you know? And <laughs> so You were a millennial before millennials. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I have to close. George Plimpton such an interesting figure. He's passed on and not with us, but a guy is just talk a little bit about what it was like, what he was like, and, and what you learned from him. So every I come to New York for 20 years, three or four times a year, and I'd always go to 541 East 72nd, and there was always a party there. And you'd bump into John Kerry or Kurt Vonnegut or Norman Mailer, and half the time George didn't even know they were there. And you see, had this Paris Review staff and this great um, pool table where allegedly JFK had sex with Marilyn Monroe. That's what I was allegedly <laughs> Norman Mailer tell that story. <laughs> well, somebody of, of you know equal storytelling, but he was a great mentor and he was a, a great writer and a great raconteur. But the untold story of George is he had lots of young people that he sort of took under his wing and uh, mentored and and that he was a teacher and and then that gave him great i think uh, silent joy the whole paris review was about mentoring a couple generations of young writers you know i never had any budget you right. know he he put his own money in keeping that thing going and uh, i i was definitely a protege of his and a and a recipient of his of his uh, intellectual largesse and he was this guy, for people who don't know, like, was a brilliant writer. Like, he played football. Like, he did everything. Yeah, he was one of these guys line. Who, he did everything. Yes. He was the first participatory journalist. He yeah. gave the idea to Hunter S. Thompson. And uh, he was supposed to be a lawyer, went to Harvard. He was in Robert F. Kennedy's class. And um, he bucked the trend, and he decided, against all pressures to the contrary, to follow his bliss. And uh, he had the courage to do it. And, and when I was a young man, saw that, you know, Minneapolis is kind of a you know place of bad hair and sensible shoes, and people don't always necessarily get out and follow their dreams. And to spend a year with George, I realized there's a you can you you can follow your dream, follow your bliss, and and if you keep at it, eventually it'll work. Amen to that. Thank you, Dan. Everyone, you got to pick up Blue Zones of Happiness. Must read. You'll be happier. I love you. Thanks so much. Thank you.